the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen. Hello, everybody. This is Nick Robinson from Aberdeen, and you're listening to the Emerging Markets Equity Podcast, the show that explores the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets. We ask our expert guests the big questions from key individuals to evolving trends, all with the goal to identify and profit from opportunities in the region. So today's conversation I've been looking forward to for a while. I'm really delighted to be joined by Hasnain Malik, who is the head of Emerging Markets and Frontier Market Equity Strategy at Telema. So for those that aren't familiar with Telema, it's a research firm that really specialises in emerging and frontier markets. Hasnain is a leading expert on emerging markets and frontier markets, and he has over 25 years of experience in EM, having started his career at Citigroup in the late 90s. In today's conversation, we're going to have a broad discussion of how he thinks about emerging markets as an asset class, some of the key themes in EM investing at the moment, and opportunities that Hasnain sees going forward. So Hasnain, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, Nick. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you on. So let's start on emerging markets broadly as an investment opportunity. You know, when I think about our portfolios, it's a pretty diverse range of countries and companies. And you know, we have investments in some of the highest tech companies on the planet in Taiwan. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have, for instance, companies that just sell cement in Peru. So, you know, Given that broad range and, and everything that's in between, how do you think about emerging markets and frontier markets as an asset class and how to really make the most of the investment opportunity set that it presents? Well, I think you summed it up in that it is a very, very heterogeneous asset class. You know, if you just look at the range of countries, and we're talking about almost 50 plus countries in this universe, you have wide spectrum of economic size, equity market liquidity. You know, you think of, say, a behemoth like China at one end, and then an absolute minnow like Georgia or Zimbabwe at another. You've got very different uh, range of fundamental characteristics. You know, you've got some countries with very strong balance sheets like Taiwan, Korea, Saudi, and the rest of the GCC. And then you've got some really fragile countries in terms of external debt and, and vulnerability like Egypt or Pakistan or Kenya. Um, you've got you know, a range of political systems. You've got some really stable governments, whether they're democratic or authoritarian. So you have the likes of, let's say, India or Saudi Arabia at one end who have got the capacity for reform. And then you've got those, again, who are very volatile in political terms, can't take long-term decisions and really kind of um, are always running short-term kind of tactical management. And then if you look at things geopolitically, You've got some countries who are still very closely aligned with the United States, rely a great deal on the amount of trade and investment they interact with with the U.S. and, of course, U.S. defense cover. And then you've got a growing number of countries who are effectively looking to hedge their geopolitical bets a little bit. So when you kind of take a step back and you look at that very varied universe, in my view, what that screams out is you have to adopt an active portfolio approach. You've got to be actively choosing which countries you're selecting, which sectors, which stocks, and you have to be nimble. Because I think particularly in a year like this, there is no single theme that is going to dominate 
and lead equity markets globally. I think at different times, you're going to have to gravitate towards those countries with strong sovereign balance sheets. At different times, you have to embrace again, where is there structural growth available in the tech sector, as you mentioned earlier? When is it the time to be heavily invested in commodities? When is it time to look at manufacturing opportunities, at tourism opportunities? And I think your only discipline looking at all those different themes is obviously be very conscious of valuation. You've always got a screen for valuation. My preferred metric is generally valuation relative to a market's own history. But I think those are the themes that you, you, you need to have all of those bows in your quiver, as, as it were. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that's something certainly I think we'd agree with at Aberdeen. You mentioned China uh, in your initial comments and just the size of that market. And I, I suppose given how it is the, the largest market in the emerging market benchmark by some margin, despite all the challenges it's facing at the moment, yeah, how do you see China shaping up, both in terms of the local economy there, but also the mo- more existential issue over their relations with the rest of the world, and particularly the US at the moment? Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's still a, a very big chunk of the benchmark indices, you know, around 30%. So it can't be ignored. Um, and if you think China is uninvestable, then as uh, benchmarks are currently constructed, you're going to have a big problem with looking at emerging markets overall. I'm not in that camp. I don't think it's uninvestable. I do acknowledge that the old model of, you know, tons of investment in infrastructure and property domestically and a drive to grow manufacturing exports in a world of relatively free trade from a Chinese perspective. That old model has lost steam. So there is definitely a deceleration of growth underway. And I think equity market valuation in China reflects that pretty fully. I think what the market is maybe a little bit too greedy for and is going to be disappointed by is this hope that China is going to respond to this challenge the way that maybe the US might have done post-global financial crisis or post-COVID, which is with kind of some kind of bazooka-level stimulus. I don't think that's coming in China because there is already an excess of infrastructure. So the marginal returns from just piling on more infrastructure is pretty low. I think also the authorities are very sensitive about reinflating a real estate bubble. They've been trying to deflate for a number of years. And I think also, remember, with you know total government debt to GDP. So when you throw in local government debt as well, that statistic up around 100%, it's not as if the Chinese government can simply put cash into the hands of Chinese consumers and say, right, go forth and spend in the way that maybe uh, a country with the sort of exceptional advantages on monetary and fiscal policy like the US has. So it's definitely a tougher time domestically. But as I say, there is a price for everything. And I would say that's largely reflected in Chinese valuations. When it comes to the second part of your question, which is around U.S. relations, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure those are going to get systematically better anytime soon. I mean, you could argue that the one issue on which there is bipartisan agreement in the U.S. Congress is on the suspicion of China and the threat perceived from China. So there's certainly been no softening of the anti-China stance and the transition from President Trump to President Biden. There's no change in U.S. congressional views. And I would argue on most fronts, China has kind of been losing out in that friction, whether it's access to cutting edge technology, whether it's the geopolitical alignment. We've seen much more tightly now between the US, Japan and Korea, 
the US and the Philippines, the US and Vietnam, the US and Australia, and in a more tentative way, the US and India. But to take all of that, whether it's the domestic challenges, the foreign policy challenges, I don't believe that Xi Jinping, Communist Party General Secretary and effectively ruler for the rest of his life, is irrational. I don't see his default response being just keep doing the same things that are not working out on domestic economic policy or go forth and in, you know, do something really disruptive like invade Taiwan. I don't see that happening. I think the history of Xi Jinping is a much more pragmatic one than that. And that's why I would say that that sort of view that China is somehow uninvestable, um, that's not one that, that I subscribe to. Difficult, yes, but priced in, not uninvestable. So you see, I suppose, these current geopolitical tensions as being more transitory in a way, and you think that it's, it's possible that uh, the relations are going to improve going forward. Would that be, would that be fair? No, I, I wouldn't go that far. Um, I, I don't see this as a, as a transitory uh, sort of fractious environment. I think that will continue, but there are limits to it. You know, this is not Cold War 2.0 because of the economic interlinkage of the US and China. And yes, there are plans and there are efforts for uh, diversification of supply chains and things like that, but it is still very hard for the world to find another factory as big as the one that China effectively has. So I don't see a complete disconnect. I just think that the capacity of that of those fractious relations to surprise investors, I think that has dissipated. I think everyone now understands that this is going to be a difficult environment in terms of international relations. I suppose one thing that we've been seeing, particularly with some of our clients in, in the US, but actually not just in the US, it started to occur more in Europe, is the keenness to start limiting the magnitude of investments within China such that emerging markets, ex-China, is becoming, you know, I suppose, an asset class that the institutions seem to be having a bit more interest in. You know, do you think that's a, that's a trend that's likely to continue, so the separation of, of China out from emerging markets? Well, I, I would have some sympathy uh, with that move, and I've certainly heard that sort of talk as well. Um, but it actually predates uh, China's slowdown in economic growth or the disappointment around recovery this year or concerns over how bad relations with the U.S. gets. It really started when you got to a point where China at peak was almost 40 plus percent of the benchmark index. And that completely skews the asset class. It really means that, in a sense, there's not much point in worrying about much else apart from China. And if you were to do that, you know, that would orphan effectively four or five other very big emerging markets, India, Brazil, Taiwan, Korea, and others. And it would completely make irrelevant, you know, a long list of about 40 other four zero other emerging market and frontier countries in which there is a lot of opportunity, either you know, in terms of high growth, capital market development, transformational change. So I think that move was underway regardless of the merits or demerits of the China investment case specifically, just because it was so big and outsized relative to the rest of the universe. And I do think it makes sense. Um, it makes sense if you can create an asset class that allows you to take much bigger proportionate um, exposure to markets like India um, and others, or you know, for example, in the, in the GCC and smaller down the universe, um, to get exposure to those themes like tourism, manufacturing, commodities, technology-driven transformational change, structural reform, all that good stuff. Having a universe that's ex-China allows you to do that because it actually makes those smaller markets more relevant 
to a, a new benchmark index. So I certainly have uh, sympathy with that. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, that certainly feels like the way the world is going, particularly I I read some research recently that suggested that China's weighting within the benchmark could be as much as 50% at some stage with A shares being weighted more reflecting their market cap. Yeah, I suppose thinking a little bit outside of China, you know, particularly some of those countries that benefit from supply chain diversification away from China, like Mexico and Vietnam. I mean, how would you see those as investment opportunities today and any other countries you'd highlight as a beneficiary of that trend? Yeah, so, so the first thing I would say is, is yes, there is without question a drive post-COVID for supply chain diversification. And that's being accelerated by, as I say, the sort of friction we've talked about between the US and China. And the question is, you know, what do you need as a multinational for a China plus strategy for manufacturing? Well, you know, I'd say you need low wages, you need a large labor force, you need a place that enjoys low tariff access to both the EU and the US, and you need broadly some sort of relative political stability. It doesn't have to be perfect, but relatively politically stable. Um, and you don't need the ideals of perfect logistics. You don't need, you know, necessarily very advanced educational attainment, but you need at least, you know, a subset of the factors I've mentioned. And yeah, you're absolutely right that the two most glaring beneficiaries are Mexico, which not just benefits from supply chain diversification, but also near shoring, uh, and Vietnam, which has far and away the cheapest labor in Asia, allied with the lowest tariff access to both the EU and the US, uh, and is demonstrably growing its net manufacturing exports. But there are others, you know, in um, large emerging markets, obviously, there's India, in the smaller emerging markets, if you go through it by region, you know, in Asia, you don't just have Vietnam, but you also have at the cheaper wage end, the likes of Bangladesh uh, and the Philippines. In LATAM, it's not just Mexico. Uh, you also have Colombia, although obviously with a smaller labor force. And even in Africa, um, you already have demonstrably Morocco benefiting from these sort of trends. And if it could just get its act together in terms of macroeconomic policy management, you would have Egypt as well. So there are certainly a number of different players um, that give you access to, to that kind of China plus manufacturing theme. And you mentioned a, a lot of frontier markets in, in that response. So kind of interested in if you think there could be scope for a frontier market resurgence at some point, because that was you know, an asset class that perhaps 10 years ago had an awful lot of uh, positive news flow around it, which which now appears to have gone off the radar to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at um, valuation opportunity, frontier markets are generally cheaper than the large emerging markets. I think if you look at, again, the heterogeneity, you know, the diversity of those frontier markets, some of them no doubt have fragility at the moment. They are suffering in an environment of relatively high US interest rates or low risk appetite and high commodity prices, particularly in oil. But not all of them. So yes, for uh, every Pakistan, there is a Kazakhstan. Um, for uh, every Kenya, um, there is a Morocco. So so there is balance in the in that universe. The challenge is, and as it was ten years ago, is obviously the level of liquidity in those equity markets is a great deal lower than in emerging markets. So the size of assets that can be deployed in frontier equity is necessarily so much less than can be deployed in large-scale 
or even mid-sized emerging markets. But is there opportunity for anyone who has the luxury of patience for true kind of country transformation at that frontier end? Absolutely. Yeah, certainly thinking as a bottom-up investor, we have a handful of frontier market investments in our funds. And and some of them are probably the most exciting businesses that, that we invest in, given the opportunity set they have. If we take a step back, I mean, thinking about the, the asset class, historically, it tends to do quite well when the dollar weakens and commodities strengthen, particularly those regions like LATAM that are big commodity exporters. So you know, talking today in, in late September with oil getting close to triple figures again, do you think we could be setting up for a similar post-global financial crisis commodity boom? And putting into perspective, I suppose, one of the key differences this time around versus 2009 is the emergence of the Middle East in terms of being a large part of the benchmark and a, a large contributor to the opportunity set. So you know, perhaps talking around that would be interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, without knowing the exact timing, um, you know, we are getting close to a peak in U.S. inflation, a peak in U.S. rates, and barring any kind of global calamity that drives this um, rush towards you know safer assets, we should see some softening in the dollar, and that is normally a supportive environment for emerging market assets and particularly commodity prices. And I think we have an interesting moment, um, and when I say moment, you know, a phase that could last multiple years, where in the emerging markets, you can get exposure currently to really the you know, what will be the last surviving oil exporters, because some of the cheapest oil production is in the countries that you mentioned, particularly in the Middle East. At the same time, as you can get exposure to the key commodity that forms a part of the renewables energy transition, which is copper. So on the one hand, not only do you have this very juicy window in terms of export prices for the likes of Saudi Arabia, the rest of the GCC like Kuwait, Qatar, the UAE, others in the emerging market universe like Kazakhstan, Colombia, Nigeria, if you want to go right to the frontier end, you have that as an oil complex at the same time as you can get exposure to copper exports via Chile, Peru, and then again at the very frontier end, the likes of Zambia. So that's the part of commodities that could be very powerful. Now, you know, would I describe it sort of another post-global financial crisis type super cycle? Probably not, because on the demand side, we don't have another build-out on the scale of China to occur over the next decade. So it's not really going to be a demand-led cycle. It's more about the shortage of supply. Remember, we've gone through years of underinvestment in upstream exploration of oil and on copper mining development um, because of obviously COVID and, and difficult financial conditions over the last few years. So that's what I think creates in a softer U.S. rate environment such an interesting play in commodities for EM, for, you know, for, for emerging markets. You are absolutely right that compared to a generation ago, the Middle East is so much more important than uh, it was as, as an addressable, accessible opportunity for foreign investors. And what I would add is what makes the Middle East in general so much more interesting than Latin America is structural reform. You know, you could never have imagined 10 years ago that in the last five years, we would see a social revolution in a place like Saudi Arabia. And how you demonstrate that is consider something like female 
labor participation. You could never have imagined you know, that going from 20% at the start of 2017 to 50%, 50% by the end of 2022, at the same time as female unemployment has dropped from 35% to 20%. That is a social transformation, which has happened in a compressed space of time, unlike, I would argue, we've seen anywhere else in the world before. That's just Saudi Arabia. If you look at elsewhere in the GCC, we are seeing uh, liberalization of long-term residency rules, which is making the expat communities much stickier. And again, if you look at an example of social liberalization, consider the United Arab Emirates, which has now established a gambling uh, regulatory body, which shows you what the next phase of diversification is there. That is a, a set of examples of structural reform, which I really don't see in places like Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, Peru, Mexico, etc. Okay, thanks, Haslam. That's interesting. Yeah, certainly, you know, as, as someone who's visited Saudi reasonably frequently over the last 10 years or so, you can really see the change that's been underway in that country. And, and certainly um, the investment opportunity set there has, has really improved in, in the last few years. Do you think, you know, there's one trend that's been, you know, talked about a bit more in emerging markets and, and globally in the last couple of years, it's really this kind of desire for emerging markets, particularly places like Saudi and China, to move away from the dollar in terms of how they settle transactions. Do you think this kind of de-dollarization, you know, I guess perhaps it's not quite a trend, but de-dollarization theme is, is something that we should be paying attention to in emerging markets? Well, I think when we talk about the role of the dollar, um, we've got to segment two things. One is the use of the dollar as a method of settling transactions or trade. And yes, there are some tentative moves towards the adoption of bilateral currencies for that. I must say that the announcements are a lot more dramatic than the implementation has been thus far. There's another side of this debate, which I think is very badly misunderstood, which is the role of the dollar as the dominant global reserve currency. And it's really that role which gives the U.S. a degree of exceptional leeway when it comes to its policies and which makes the rest of the world's economic system still very dependent on what goes on with U.S. rates and uh, the rest of the world's investment climate very dependent on what goes on with the U.S. dollar. And there is, in my view, no challenge, at least in our professional lifetimes, to the dominant role of the dollar as the global's reserve currency. It is... I think very unlikely that you will see, for example, China allow the sort of um, free convertibility, you know, capital account liberalization that will allow the renminbi to rival the dollar. It is very unlikely that you will see other countries offer the sort of rule of law transparency that the U.S. does. And even though the U.S. is testing the limits of everyone's appetite to use its currency as a reserve, through things like sanctions, which we've seen on North Korea, Iran, and of course, most recently on Russia, it's still very hard to find an alternative that is at least as good. And so I don't think the US's role as a reserve currency, US dollar's role as a reserve currency is going to change. At the margin, its share of global trade may erode a little bit. The bottom line is the conditions that are set for global investment analysis, I don't think change as a result. Okay, well, great. That feels like a good place to draw the podcast to a close. So yeah, the only thing left for me to do is, is thank my guest, Hasnain. Thank you so much for joining today. My pleasure. And thank you, everyone, who took the time to listen in. 
If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for the next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and for more great content, visit Aberdeen.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.